Hello, my name is Donnie Smith, and I'm the pastor here at Ascension Christian Center in Apopka, Florida. I hope this message changes, impacts, and challenges you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you enjoy the message, you can connect with us on our website, Facebook, or Instagram at Ascension Christian Center. Thank you, and enjoy. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. I'm speaking of gifts uh, that we're sending to the voice of the martyrs. Um, the text in Matthew um, speaks of gifts, and I want to start reading for the sake of time. I know we went a little over. Um, I'm going to try to cover everything this morning. Amen. All right, read along with me if you can. It'll be up on your screens if, it's, if you don't have it on your iPhone or your hard copy here, your old, my old faithful Bible I like to have, just in case my device decides to act up. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, and it says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Everybody say worship. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler, meaning Jesus, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child Jesus was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with his mother Mary and fell down and worshipped him. Everybody say worship. They fell down and worshipped him, and when they had opened their treasures... They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, and they departed for their own country and went another way. The foundational scripture I want to extrapolate from today is in verse 11, and it says, and when they came into the house, they saw the young child, meaning the wise men, everybody say wise men, the astrologers, the wise men not necessarily Christians, they brought him gifts and they fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Been in a series the past five weeks, and I think I've said this for the past couple of weeks now, and uh, I want to reiterate it that it is by far the longest series I've ever ministered on. This is number six today. Everybody say amen to that. Not sure if it's going to outlast Christmas. I promise I'm going to get to some Christmas stories, but I've been having trouble um, as I've been studying, and I feel like the Lord is ministering to my heart, and I feel that I'm in a worthy vein to stay in. Um, so we will get to some Christmas stories that will um, kind of theme around you know, Jesus' birth and things of, that, things of that nature, but I feel that it's critical that I kind of move with the Holy Spirit 
um, as he's sharing something in my heart that I feel that he wants to communicate to you. The first week, uh, for those of you who have not been here, um, I ministered. That, uh, how many know what the name of the series is? Come on, I want to see how good you guys are listening. Anybody in the room? Everybody has been, look at everybody, look at down. Look at <laughs> what was last week's? Oh, Jesus. It was, oh, that was right. Look, somebody was listening the week before. <laughs> Amen. Well, the name of the series, I want everybody to say it with me because you do act when I am preaching. I think you do get it. It's just what happens when you walk out of the door. It's called The Sound of Awakening. Everybody say, The Sound of Awakening. The Sound of, say it again, The Sound of Awakening. If you say it more than one time, maybe this memorization will begin to to kick in. Um, and this sound of awakening, the first, the reason why I came up with this message is because I've been studying the history of great revivals that have taken place. Amen? Everybody say revivals. I've studied the Great Wales revivals and the Azusa Street revival that happened over 100 years ago. And just all that had taken place. And the, the Holy Spirit dropped this series in my mind and in my heart. And he, I be, truly believe that he wanted me to speak on the sound of awakening. In other words, what does it look, not what it looks like, but what does it sound like? Everybody, what, everybody say, what does it sound like? Revival has a sound to it. I think I've seen glimpses of revivals pop up all over the city. I've certainly heard about them. We certainly memorialize many of them. One of the ones that took place in my lifetime in the past uh, couple of decades was what we called the Brownsville Revival. How many remember of me sharing about the Brownsville Revival and me going to the church and basically Joel finding the church door open at uh, 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning? If you have been in church any length of time, You'll find out really quickly uh, that there was nobody there on Saturday mornings, but the Lord opened the door, literally, <laughs> both figuratively and literally speaking. The worship was on. I wish I had a picture of it. And, uh, and I think that sparked something in my heart, and the Lord began to minister to me about what the sound of revival sounds like. And one of those sounds, the first week I preached on, the subtitle was Desperation. Everybody say Desperation. In other words, until you get desperate for a real move of God, God generally doesn't show up. Somebody say amen to that. Until we are hungry for the things of God, God has no reason or he's not inspired to move in such a way that would satisfy our hearts. The scripture is very, very clear. The, the Bible says this in Matthews in the Beatitudes. He says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. So if you're not hungry, God has nothing to fill. The second week came along and we preached on declaration. That, there's a sound there. The sound of people declaring what God said in his word because the Bible says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't believe that Brownsville was necessarily his favorite. I just believe that they declared the word of God and that they were desperate and that caused a combustion and caused the sound of revival to break forth. And I believe that we're in, on the same cusp today in the churches all around Orlando, not just Ascension. And the third sound uh, that I preached on, um, it was in the third week, was the sound of warfare. 
the sound of people getting ready for warfare. Listen, the devil will fight you tooth and nail if you are looking to get something great from God. Whether it's in your personal life, whether it's on a um, national level, or whether it's on a church level, if you set out to do something to affect the kingdom of God, or to do something good for someone, or to build a better life for yourself, you better believe you better get ready for warfare because the enemy will fight back and cause resistance so that you don't enter the promised land in your personal life or in your church or on a national level. Can somebody say amen to that? And the third week, we talked about one of my very, very favorites. I should write a book on it. The sound of brokenness. The sound of brokenness. Until you find people who are broken for the things of God, you generally won't see a move of God. The kind of brokenness I'm, not talking, I'm talking about is not necessarily a disappointment, but a brokenness to a degree that God, unless you show up, we die. That kind of brokenness. I know that sounds extreme, but until you are broken, until you realize that, Lord, we are nothing without you. Our churches are nothing without you. Our families are nothing without you. Our job, our 401k, our lives are nothing without you. And Lord, would you come and move? And unless you do, my heart will never be satisfied. That kind of brokenness. Everybody say brokenness. brokenness. And then fifthly, the sound of sacrifice. You generally will never see a great move of God unless you see people in the corporate body sacrificing of their time, their talents, and their prayers, sacrificing because God shows up, his presence shows up where there is sacrifice. And we talked about Abraham and, and, and Isaac being sacrificed and how God showed up and intervened. Amen? But today's message is entitled, Worshippers. The sound of worshipers. Everybody say worshipers. I love this scripture in John chapter 4, verse 23 through 24. And it says this. This is Jesus' declaration on what the last days will look like before his great coming, I believe. And it says this. But the hour is coming and now is that when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I've been thinking about what this whole concept of worship looks like. I think Matt has a great picture of it. Certainly, Alicia does, and all the other worship leaders and the instrumentalists. I, 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 I think instrumentalists, excuse me, if I'm tripping over my words, I have these uh, trays in my mouth. I'm, I talk with a lisp. <laughs> I believe that we have a good idea of what worship looks like, but when we think of worship, we oftentimes think about it, look at Matt laughing at me, I think we think about it in the context of leading worship on a microphone and on a keyboard. I looked up worship just, just for kicks and giggles as to what Google defines worship as. And they started giving all these sacrimonial acts and, um, you know, uh, the, the Holy Eucharist, which you and I know as the breaking of bread or uh, communion. Everybody say communion. And then it goes on to say that it's just praising God in music and in speech. A lot of surface things that begin to um, reiterate, and it said reading from scriptures, prayer of various sorts, even a sermon. And I thought, how do you worship God through a sermon? Amen? All these different little ceremonies they called worship. 
which I wouldn't den denounce the fact or, or, or diminish the fact that it is a level of worship, but I don't think this is the level of worship that I think it's talking about, at least not to the degree that would cause a revival to break forth in the church of Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen to that? Because God is looking for a, a church that's not full of attendance. He's looking for a church and a body of believers who are deeply enveloped with love and affection and deep desire to see him move in their lives. I recently, um, um, well, let me just go into this. Uh, the, the different um, exhibits or, or, or uh, the few qualities that I feel that, that exemplify what a true worship looks like. Can we do that? Can I kind of teach, preach a little bit? Amen. The first one is engaged minds. And oftentimes when we think of worship, we think we have, we give little thought to your mind uh, being involved in your worship. But am I the only one who has stood in the front and hadn't engaged in worship whatsoever? I lifted my hands and lifted my mouth, but my mind was nowhere engaged. And I have left services unmoved. And it's because of this very fact that we don't talk about. We don't, we don't talk about the fact that your mind needs to be fully engaged in worshiping God if you're going to get something from the Lord. Or if, better yet, if God is going to get something from the worship service. Oh, somebody say amen to that. I love what it says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. It says this, Jesus said to him or them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and what? All your what? All your mind. He was saying, hey, I don't just want you to love me by coming to church. I don't want you to just love me by leading worship or, or singing backup. I don't just want you to love me on instruments. I don't just want you to love me by lifting your hands and lifting your voice, although that is a level of sacrifice. I want you to intentionally focus on me when you come before me to worship. I don't want you to think about the football game that's coming up in a couple of hours. I don't want you to think about you having to go shop for Christmas gifts after service. I want your mind to be fully engaged in worship when you come into my house because my house is a house of worship. Hallelujah. I was thinking about this, love the Lord with all your soul. It goes on to say with all your mind, but let's talk about what that looks like. Everybody say the soul. What is, I'm gonna engage you guys a little bit. Can anybody give me a small definition of what the soul is? I'm gonna engage you guys. Come on, wake up. It is your mind, your will, and your emotions. You should come up here and preach. She's good. I love her. She will. It is your mind, your will, and your emotion. That's, that is what the soul is made up of. And so if, if you are going to fully engage in worship, you cannot leave the mind part out of the worship experience that you are giving God and that you are experiencing in return. And for me, this is by far the most difficult. I think Matt can testify. I think we've probably talked about this. We've left services unmoved. When you go to church as much as we do and as much as some of you do, you do not experience God fully each and every time, and you are not fully focused every time you come to church. Can somebody admittedly say amen to that? It's by far, far the f hardest one for me is to engage mentally because oftentimes I'm, th I'm, uh, I'm thinking about something, maybe a bill that needs to be paid. To, truth be told, when I'm in the front, sometimes I have to work up a little bit in order for me to engage in worship. I'm going to be honest with you. I have a perfect example of today. I normally don't tell you guys what I'm kind of doing uh, pre-service, but I was in the um, in the office, in the back, I have an office that's kind of detached from the, from the building, and I'm there reviewing my sermon notes. 
as I'm reviewing my notes, I'm reading and I'm retaining just a little bit. I kind of just scan over them, not for memorization purposes, but just to kind of catch what I had written down because oftentimes I'll just forget. And uh, as, so I, as I'm reading, I, I felt the Holy Spirit unction me, you know, just get on your knees before me and focus and just pray and give this to me. I was in one of those moments where I'm like, Lord, unless you show up through me, I don't have much to say. I need you to breathe in and through me. If you're going to touch your people, if you're going to exhort your people and encourage them, I need you to work through me. Did I feel like praying? Absolutely not. Did I feel like seeking the Lord? Absolutely not. As I get down on my knees, I lay the message just down at the edge of my knees, and I just begin to declare uh, God's wonderful works over my life. I begin to tell him, thank you. I begin to just worship him and I begin to force my mind and engage my mind to focus on him. It wasn't soon after that, that the anointing filled the room and my heart began to line up with my mouth and my mind began to line up with my heart. And the Holy Spirit just came in the room and changed the whole atmosphere. What was I doing? I was intentionally engaging my mind to worship God and it didn't proceed with a feeling. As I began to intentionally do what I knew was right to do, engage my mind in worshiping him, my feelings followed. Everybody say, do the right thing, and feelings will follow. Feelings will follow. And here's why I believe that we struggle so much with focusing on God when we worship. It's because Satan's greatest weapon is to, is to infiltrate the mind into our thinking, this has everything to do with the way you're going to experience God. There are many times I've gone to the gym and have had no earthly benefit for going because I had a couple of pastor friends. He's laughing because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. And this is the reason why he doesn't go to the gym with me anymore, talking about Sean. It's because we got very, very little done going to the gym other people who seen us coming out may have thought, man, I bet you they had a great you know, workout. Me and him are sitting there talking as we're walking out of the door. Little did they know that we spent more talk, time talking than engaging and getting a pump. That's another word. That's what, what you know, what do they call them? Brutes? Muscle heads? You can go to church and not receive anything by where you allow your mind to engage or not engage. And so uh, friends of mine, and Pastor Dave included, who presides on our, our, our board of directors, doesn't go at the same time anymore because we caught a revelation. If we're going to get something done at the gym, if we're going to get our workout on, if we're actually going to break a sweat, we cannot work out together. What I'm saying is I'm using a funny practical example to let you know that you have to intentionally remove specific distractions, including your mind, if you're going to get something out of your worshipful relationship with Jesus. Amen, Amen to that. Lifted hands. Everybody say lifted hands. I'm going to talk about some practical things. Is everybody okay? Is this okay? Lifted hands. Everybody say lifted hands. I love in 1 Timothy where it says this, I desire therefore that, the, that men and or women pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Everybody lift up holy hands. Lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. 
I want to show this picture. When I went to Brownsville, there was about 10,000 people uh, lifting their hands simultaneously. Now, I know that Matt has been, I keep calling out Matt. I know that Matt has seen massive crowds with hands lifted high. I've never seen 10,000 people. I even went through the crowd to see, I don't know if you can, but I only found one or two people that were not lifting hands. And one of them that I had found was touching, holding his hands on his heart. And one was getting up with uh, a walker. And those were the only people that I didn't see lifting their hands. And so I think of a few different things when people lift their hands or the significance of it. Can anybody tell me what the significance of lifting one's hands is? Come on, I want you to give me some feedback. Surrender. What else? Worship. What else? Come on, give me another one. Any more? Honor. All three of those that I just mentioned are pretty much the sum of my text and my notes. One of the postures for lifting your hands is surrender. This is one of the few positions where you get into a place where you're like, Lord, I give this all to you. You can think of this as a receiving position as well, but actually this, one of the reasons is, Lord, I give this all to you. When your mind is discombobulated and you're fighting through a web of, of, of thoughts of things that you're going through when you're worshiping the Lord, if you, this is a sign to say, Lord, I need you to take all of this because I can't rid myself of this in of myself. I give it all to you. Everybody say, I give it all to you. And another reason for lifting hands is what someone just said. I can't remember who it was. It's a posture to receive from the Lord. You know, it really saddens me that there are people who actually come to church who expect to receive nothing from the Lord. You know, when you're in this posture, first and foremost, there should be this surrender, but there's also this receiving, like, Lord, I need your grace right now. Lord, I need your mercy. I need your truth to penetrate certain areas of my life. Or, Lord, I need some direction. I need you to tell me what is the next phase of my life. What is next for me? What do I do in this difficult situation? What do I do in this legal battle that I'm in? Or whatever it is that you're facing. I see some people laughing. I'll ask you after service why you're laughing. Amen? How many want to receive from the Lord? And not only is it a sign to receive, but it is a sign, somebody said worship. It's actually reverence. It's honoring for who he is. You're not in a posture of, Lord, I just need you to take something from me, or Lord, I need you to download something into me. Lord, I honor you for who you are. We lift up holy hands. And I I love that song when they started off with it. It says, come, let us adore him. Sometimes we just need to come before him with no expectations at times. We're not surrendering anything, and we're not here to expect anything from you, not any gifts or impartations. But, Lord, we love you for who you are, and that is sufficient. Amen? Amen. Number three, I'm going to move through this pretty quick. Uh, Raised voices. And I talked about a little bit about declaration, which I believe was uh, in the second week. Um, and I mentioned this last week, preaching does nothing for God. Has anybody thought about that? Preaching does nothing for God. As a matter of fact, I want to challenge you and say this, and I have the conviction of the Lord on this. There is no other part of the service that God looks forward to except on the front end. And we call that worship. It's the only time that God gets something out of the equation. Think about it. When the word is being preached, you and I get to receive from that. And if you don't think I get to receive from it, I study and I'm receiving first and then I come give it to you guys. Amen. But the worship time and the worship service is the only time that God actually gets something out of the relationship. He gets worshiped. He gets adored. He gets lifted up. And I love this scripture. It says this, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Amen. 
I was reading a fun fact. Uh, would you guys like to hear it? It says this, that uh, it, it, 200, approximately 250 times throughout the Bible, it's mentioned, praise is mentioned to God. Like where we are, it's a command, actually. He's not even suggesting it. Like, Lord, we should lift hands. He says, I desire them in everywhere. Lift up holy hands. These are commands. Like you need to do this action in order to get this kind of response from God. Amen? 250 times. If God mentions something one time in the Bible, I believe it's important. Now, when he says something 250 times, we ought to start thinking twice about this command. Amen? So 250 times, God is literally commanding people saying, you need to praise God. Amen? And we do that by lifting our voices. And I find that all throughout the scriptures, in Psalms 117, it says this, Praise the Lord, for his mercy and kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Everybody say, praise the Lord. In Isaiah 25, it says, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. In Psalms 20, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 20, verse 13, it says, Praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. In Luke 18, verse 43, it says this, And all the people, when they saw it, the healing of the blind man meaning, gave praise to God. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Lord. And praising God is not a feeling. If you wait for the feeling, you will miss out on what God's trying to do. As I mentioned when I was in the office a little while ago, oftentimes I have to physically sacrifice praise to God before I even experience his presence. Amen. Amen. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Lord. Nudge somebody and say, praise the Lord. Fourthly, and I'll close. Bowed hearts. Somebody say, bowed hearts. Realize I didn't say bowed knees. I said bowed hearts. And just a couple of weeks ago, I was ministering about the young rich ruler and how he, and it says in the text, Um, that he ran, I believe it's found in Luke, he ran to Jesus. In other words, his expression was emphatic. He ran to Jesus and bowed down and say, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus proceeds to say, hey, listen, this is how you do it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know, sell some of your possessions, honor your father and mother. You know the commandments, he said. And he says, all these I've kept since my youth. And then Jesus proceeds to say one last thing. One thing you still lack. In other words, you, you, you love things more than you love me. Or another way to say it is you worship things more than you worship me. He said, go and sell all your possessions and come and follow me. And the Bible says, and I quote, this young man went away sorrowful because he had a lot to give up. Or he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. He had bowed knees but he didn't have a bowed heart. And there are many Christians today who have bowed knees who are masterful in their attendance in our churches, but they don't have bowed hearts. They don't have surrendered hearts. Look at somebody and say, ask them, do you have a bowed heart? Look at your neighbor and say, do you have a bowed heart? And you guys thought I forgot about the, the, the wise man, didn't you? Think about how different, how different their response was, the wise man that they displayed. 
These guys weren't even Christians. These were astrologers. As a, as, a, as a matter of fact, the Old and the New Testament says that this is a type of, these are type of sorcerer. These guys were not Christian people. They didn't speak the fluent Christianese language like you and I did. They came from afar. They read stars and they came and they worshiped Jesus. But when they came, they didn't come half-heartedly like the man, the young rich ruler. It says they came and they gave out of their abundance. They gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave their best. And when we worship to give Jesus anything, then less than our best is a failure. Amen? And I want to talk about these couple of different gifts that they've given Jesus, and then we'll close. Amen? What did they give him? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I thought about how prophetic this was. Gold represented kingship. When a king was born... The best type of gift you can give them that, that, that related to or, or that would symbolize honor or their kingship was gold. Everybody say gold. That tells me that when we, I think this is symbolic on how we worship God because when we come to Jesus, we shouldn't bring him silver. We should bring him gold. In other words, gold meaning this, Jesus is at the highest level. I think to worship God with anything less than our best is erroneous because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. He's the God of heaven and earth. And it's erroneous and error to give him silver. In other words, it's erroneous and error if we give him just praise in our mind and our hearts are somewhere else and we just sing along to a song. That's giving him silver. Giving him silver is showing up to church, and yet our heart isn't in the right place. Or we're angry, or we're bitter at God, or we're bitter at somebody. Amen? And so to give him real silver is to exalt him for who he is. And these unchurched, unchristian guys gave Jesus their best. Look at somebody and say, give him your best. Give him your best. And secondly, I love in Revelation where it says this, do not be afraid for I am the first and the last. I am the one who lives. I was dead. This is Jesus. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. In other words, he is the God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of hosts, the one who, was, who came, the one who's coming again. Amen. Everybody say the king. And frankincense. They gave him frankincense. Everybody say frankincense. This was a perfume and an incense for a man. It would be cologne. It would be aquadigio. Come on, what's some other colognes out there? I'm old school. I wear aquadigio and stuff like that. Any other colognes out there? They would give kings uh, incense and uh, perfumes or colognes so that when they walked into a room, their fragrance, fragrance was recognized. That is so good if you think about that. Because most churches don't recognize the fragrance of the Lord anymore. There are many, many churches, and I'm not saying we have a perfect church here, but our goal is to recognize the fragrance of the king when he walks in the room. These wise men, these astrologers, gave him a gift because they honored the presence of the Lord. Amen? Don't we want to be a church that recognizes the fragrance of heaven? There are many churches, I believe, that if Jesus walked down the aisle in physical form, they would ignore him. They don't honor the presence of God. But that wasn't the only thing that the frankincense represented. It represented Jesus' priestly role that he would exemplify in the earth. 
his priestly role. Everybody say his priestly role. In other words, priests in the Old Testament would make sacrifices on the behalf of people. The forgiveness of sins would take place at the end of every year. Amen? The priest would take the lamb. He would slay the lamb. He would sprinkle the blood on the altar. And for that year, whatever sins you had committed would be forgiven. They, these guys prophetically understood, and God used them almost like a puppet to give, them the, give Jesus these gifts, um, uh, figuratively speaking. Because prophetically, God knew that this would need to be exemplified. He would be a priest, and he would operate in a priestly role. And thirdly, everybody say thirdly. thirdly. Lastly, mirth or myrrh, pronounced myrrh. And this oil was only used, which here, here's, this one is the one that got me the most. is because why are you giving baby myrrh when this myrrh is only used to prepare bodies for burial. So in other words, this, this is this prophetic act of them giving him gold representing his kingship, giving him frankincense, honor his presence, and it represented his priestly role. Am I going too deep? And then thirdly, they're giving him the substance or this oil that would signify one day Jesus' death. And so in one man, you see this prophetic thing happening that he's going to come. And when we come to him, we come to him honoring, number one, he's king. Everybody say king. Number two, we recognize your presence and we understand that you are our priest. You're the one who goes before us. You're the one who ministers to us. But also we honor you because of your death, your burial, and your resurrection. He was both the priest who would slay the lamb and he became the lamb that would be slain by the priest. He was all three, all in one. And when when we come before God and we worship him, that's what we worship him as. We honor you as king. Come on, stand to your feet. We honor him as king. We honor you as the priest who stands in the gap for our lives and who ministers on our behalf. But we also honor you because you were, were clothed and lavished with myrrh because one day you would die and you would rise again for me and my sins so that I could, I could spend eternal life with you. These were what the gifts were about. The gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. They were all shadows. Shadows. They weren't just gifts. These were prophetic gifts that were given to our king. Let me ask you something. I know that you're preparing cookies. I didn't even prepare to say this. This is off of a whim. But I know, and I know because of Christmas time, we prepare many, many different gifts and cookies, and some are thinking about grandkids, and some are, some are thinking about traveling and spending money to fly out up north to visit family members and to spend Christmas around the tree and unwrapping gifts. And some are leaving today right after service to go buy gifts, probably including me. But what gift are you giving Christ this season. Let me ask you something else. What does your worship life toward him look like the rest of the year? I don't know about you, but I am so desperate for God to do something in my life personally and for this church. And I know the only way to get what I'm looking for from God is to give him what he's looking for. Pure unadulterated worship. As I studied, come on, somebody just lift your hands for a moment.
As I was studying all these revivals, there were no music, and though I appreciate music, but can I tell you the greatest music to heaven's ears and to the Lord's ears is pure worship. Just loving on him, just honoring him for who he is, for telling him you realize he's the king of your life, the king of your marriage, even the king of your difficulties and hardships. He's also the priest, the one who leads you in righteousness and truth, the one who ministers to you in your darkest hour. And he's also that one who is clothed in the myrrh, the one whose body was prepared for you and I to die for us so that we could be forgiven. I wonder if that's your worship. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope this message impacted you today. If you'd like to support Ascension Christian Center, simply go to ascensionchristiancenter.com and click the gift tab or text ACCFL to 77977. Interested in hearing more? Check back weekly for new messages. Have a great day.